Um, so I mentioned at the beginning of the talk last time, I want to try, try and unfold something over quite a long arc over two talks, <coughs> of which this is a second. Um, and, and it is a little bit crazy to try and do that, but uh, that's what's happening. So, um, In a lot of ways, m- much of what I'm going to go into today is, is simpler, perhaps, than, than last time. And, and you might think, well, why didn't we do the talks the other way around? We could have. Um, it's just that what I've found, some of the things I'm going to talk about today, I've uh, put out a, a little bit to people before and, and have noticed that it just doesn't land. Um, and I was wondering whether it's partly because it takes a certain amount of understanding of emptiness and what we were talking about last time to actually see the significance of what I'm going to be talking about today. Otherwise, it just sounds like, yeah, whatever. <clears throat> and still, part of why it's crazy to even be talking about this is because we're not, from the beginning of this kind of retreat, all on the same page of practicing in certain ways which would very much support the kind of inquiry into what I'm talking about uh, over these talks. Uh, so that's partly why it's crazy. <clears throat> Other retreats uh, set up where everyone is actually practicing in certain ways which open these kinds of understandings over time so it all uh, doesn't feel like it's pulling in different directions. Um, so I'm, I'm aware that it, it may be difficult for some of you, especially if it's new. Uh, I was just reflecting a little bit personally for myself I'm thinking, realizing that my, what would I say, favorite um, books that I've read, with Dharma or psychology or something else, um, the ones that have had the greatest impact opened uh, powerfully whole, whole other views or ways of thinking. Or, or um, I've had to reread them, uh, and often, in, in some instances, read read a section. Uh, you know, a few pages, then go back to that beginning of that section, read it again, uh, go on to the next one, and keep going through the book that way. And at the end of the book, go back and write, start again, and then uh, go away for a while, digest it, use use those kind of um, ideas, views, thoughts, practice with them, then come back and read it all again. It all makes more more sense. Um, so I'm aware, you know, sometimes when, when, when there's a talk and there's a lot of materials, and I'm, I know that oftentimes people, we don't, as human beings, hear everything that's said. We hear only a small fraction sometimes, and uh, sometimes understand even less. But how, how else to, to communicate things? Anyway, having said all that, let's start somewhere very simple. And, and I want to start talk about insight in, in a very simple, very general way, and then, and then weave it into... Um, some of what we were talking about last time. So insight, this word, insight, it's not a word the Buddha used that much, actually, originally. Um, of course, now in our tradition, it's come... It's come to, Tony, could we go up a bit? Or is that, is that going to be okay? We'll see. Um, <coughs> uh, it's not a word the Buddha used much, but in our tradition, it's come to... We use it all the time. So... If we, talk, if we think about insight, you actually realize, well, I can define it in, in different ways. It can be defined in different ways. There's no, like, strict, uh, exact definition. That's 
really not what I want to do now. I want to move away from strict precision, rigidity of thinking. And actually, let's just say something very loose about insight, very loose. And what if I throw this out about insight and say, insight, very loosely, is any realization, any understanding, any way of seeing, we could say, that uh, brings a decrease in dukkha, brings some alleviation, some release of dukkha. So very, very broad any realization, understanding, a way of seeing that brings some release of dukkha. So if we say it like that, very loose, very open, it actually lends itself to uh, certain understandings, certain unfolding, which I'll go into. But let's say a few things about it. First of all, if we say that, it means that insight is not a particular experience that we need to attain. Okay? So we're not chasing experiences or a particular experience. It's not experience that frees. We are not freed through or by an experience. It's through understanding, through the realization of something. That's what frees. So that's always more significant than whatever experience may or may not happen. The second thing, if you like the other side of of, of this, is that also means, defining insight this way, means that insight is not just being mindful or just knowing. For example, I can know that I'm suffering. I can know that there's a lot of suffering. I can know, I might even know there's a lot of reactivity going on now. I'm really, really reactive. I can feel I'm boiling. There's papancha, etc. Can you hear at the back okay? No. <clears throat> Joe? Do you want to, you can come sit right here, then you hear my direct voice without the mic. Thanks. Yeah? Just feel free to just sit right there, and then we'll crank this, yeah? yeah. Is that okay? Keep letting us know, because it's very windy, so just let us know when, it's not, when it's, you're not hearing. <clears throat> um, I, I might be mindful that there's a lot of reactivity, there's a lot of papancha, there's a lot of dukkha going on now. That mindfulness does not necessarily qualify as insight unless it actually decreases the dukkha. And you all know from experience, sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. I know I'm suffering, I know I'm reactive. It doesn't seem to do much. So it may decrease the dukkha, or it may not. It depends. What does it depend on? That's the interesting question. What's the factor, factors with the mindfulness that make the difference? With the awareness that makes a difference. Something to qualify as insight in this, and I'm not saying this is the, the correct way, it's just a way of thinking about insight, so a possibility. Um, something in insight cuts, or if we use the language we were using last week, fabricates less dukkha. Something through that understanding cuts undermines, reduces the dukkha, fabricates less dukkha. But also in this this way of talking about it, we say um, the understanding, the way of seeing, the realization is based on my experience. It's coming out of my experience, that understanding. It's not based on believing that uh, I'm going to be rescued somehow by something or other, uh, something. It's not faith-based or even faith in someone else's experience. It's my experience. That, that's the, the ground of that understanding. Uh, so let's just say a couple more general things and then move into what I want to get at more, more specifically today. Um, <clears throat> 
if we say that about insight, it's very loose. It actually makes it very wide as a concept. So we can have personal insights. We see or understand something that brings uh, in relation to ourselves and my personal patterns, my personal uh, ways of entangling myself in dukkha. Uh, and it, it cuts that. I mean, m- many possible examples. But for instance, um, I might have a chronic uh, knot in my uh, throat or heart area. So I deal with this so much. Every day it com- comes up, maybe a person, person says that. And somehow they have made a self-conclusion out of the presence of this knot. Maybe it's conscious, maybe it's unconscious. Because I have this persistent knot, it means I'm a closed-hearted person, it means I'm uh, anally retentive, I'm uptight, I'm uh, whatever it is, a contracted person. And with that self-view is a whole other level of tightening, of suffering, of compounding of the dukkha extremely painful and then the insight here the person is what we see oh that's an assumption I'm assuming that because there is this contraction it means this about self it's just an assumption and one sees that and it starts to make a difference starts to unbind that secondary uh, encrustation of dukkha so insights can be personal they can be universal for example uh, one uh, one becomes suddenly more aware or gradually more aware, wow, everything really is impermanent. And maybe that starts to have a difference. So the universality, it's not just a personal insight, it's a universal insight. These are uh, not strict boundaries between these categories, but we could also say beyond the universal, there's what we might call ultimate insights. Because actually impermanence is not an ultimate truth. It's not the ultimate truth of things that they are impermanent. And the mind goes, well, you're saying they're permanent? No, they're not permanent either. The ultimate truth of things is that they're neither permanent nor impermanent. There's something beyond the level of impermanence that's being pointed out. So insights can happen at all these levels, and they all qualify for insight if in the seeing and the understanding there's, there's some kind of... Uh, they're contributing to the release of dukkha, the release of dis-ease, dissatisfaction. And we keep expanding this concept. It's like, okay, well, sometimes that uh, reduction of dukkha can happen in the future. I see or understand something now, and it helps me later. So I might see, I might really, I've heard it, but then I really understand for myself, generosity opens the heart, it brings happiness. Ah, It releases dukkha. And I really see and understand that. And that plants the seed for future generosity, which brings the fruit of future happiness, future decrease of dukkha. Or uh, a kindness brings happiness, brings openness. And so I, I say, oh, I really want to practice kindness. Again, it's, it's investment in the future. The, the decrease of dukkha comes in the future. Or ethics, the necessity of, of really caring about ethics as a basis for our happiness and for uh, protecting ourselves from, from uh, unnecessary suffering. So the release can come in the future, but it can also come in the present, right 
right in this moment, when, when I see something, when I understand something, right in the present, there's a release of dukkha. Right there. And again, many possible examples. Let's take the example we talked about before. The person uh, who has persistent contraction in the body, tightness or whatever, um, and sees that assumption about self and sees that it's not necessarily true. And right then, in that moment of seeing, some, some level of dukkha is released. And the important thing is, we can feel the release in the moment. As, as you're looking, as you're understanding, the release is palpable in the body and in the mind. And that sense of release accompanies this kind of insight when it brings its fruit in the present, and it shows me that I'm on the right track. It shows, often people come into interview and they say, I was doing this and this and this, and, and it felt really good. Like, Is that right? Is that okay? And you always say, well, tr- trust it. That release, that relief that you're feeling is showing you that you can trust what you're doing. Even if you can't find it in a textbook, even if you've never heard it before. Sometimes a person is not quite sure what they're doing, but the release is telling them, I better find out what I'm doing, because whatever it is, is good. It's worth, it's worth getting clear about. So it's showing, it's really, really important, that sense of release. It's cementing the, 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 the sense of where is dukkha and where is the release from dukkha. It's, it's making palpable the four noble truths and getting me clear about which direction to go in, directions to go in. Okay, so here, that's all a bit general, but here's the piece I want to uh, take and run with a little bit. So we say insight is any realization, understanding, way of seeing that releases some dukkha to any degree. It could be a little tiny bit of dukkha or a really lot of dukkha. It's all insight. Now, probably everyone's had the experience, you're sitting in meditation, being mindful or practicing samadhi or whatever it is, or metta, and aha, aha, I understand something, some understanding, there's an aha moment, a realization It's coming out of the conditions of mindfulness or samadhi or whatever. And we understand something, and that understanding, again, contributes to the lessening of dukkha, either now or in the future. So it's what we might call insight as a result. The the result of practice is insight. That's the most common way of thinking about insight. But what what I want to emphasize today is uh, an additional possibility, another mode of thinking about insight in addition to insight as a result. And that's more insight as a starting point. Insight is something we can use, we can follow. Uh, So what I mean is, um, let's give an example. Um, Sitting in meditation, again, a lot of mindfulness, maybe it's a longer retreat, etc. And some of you may have had this experience. There's a lot of mindfulness and perhaps you're aware of the body sensations, and it seems, maybe just for an instant, maybe for a more extended period, seems that, oh, these body sensations are just happening. They don't feel like they're mine. They don't feel like they're me. There's a, 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 an unhooking of the I- habitual identification with body sensations or with thoughts or with emotions or with whatever else, Vedana, something. And we have an experience, we could say, of anatta. We have an experience of this 
phenomenon, whatever it is, as not self, not me, not mine. It's coming out of the mindfulness. Now what, if, if it's possible then to take that, that little seed, and start using that insight. So there was a result of the mindfulness, the insight, this is not me, not mine. And then we start using it and start seeing, can I nudge gently or incline the way of looking, the way of looking at experience, this, maybe it's just body sensations, just thoughts or whatever, maybe both, maybe something else, and seeing it as anatta, more deliberately, as not-self, as not-me, not-mine. So there's a deliberate sort of uh, encouragement, moment-to-moment, repeated, sustaining of a particular way of looking that has come probably previously spontaneously as a result. Do you understand? Yeah? Uh, So then we're deliberately practicing what I would call a way of looking. So listen to the Buddha. um, Actually, about this uh, this very example. And what is the perception of not self? He's asking a group of monks. And what is the perception of not self? Here, a practitioner, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree, to an empty building, to Gaia House in November, (laughs) discriminates thus. The eye is not self, forms are not self. The ear is not self, sounds are not self. The nose is not self, aromas are not self. The tongue and flavors, the body and tactile sensations... The mind and things cognizable with the mind are not self. So deliberately looking at things in a, in a different way than, than usual. Deliberately seeing things through a certain lens. Thus, she or he remains focused, key word, remains focused, repeatedly sustaining, remains focused on not-selfness with regard to the six inner and six outer sense media. That's all the eye and the forms and all that we just went through. This is called the perception of not-self. Other examples, he includes consciousness, because in Buddha Dharma, consciousnesses definitely are not-self either. And he could do that with... uh, any way you divide up what we might identify with, you can start looking at it and seeing it differently. Uh, so when I use the, w- the phrase ways of looking, I don't mean just looking as in the eyes. I mean the whole way of um, conceiving, of relating, of perceiving. It's a way of perceiving. As Buddha says, what is the perception of not-self? And then he says, this is a perception you should train. We're training a perception or if we say we're training a way of looking. So it's quite a, a different uh, mode of approaching in, insight and thinking about it. Um, so there are many of these possibilities, many, many, many of these possibilities. For instance, impermanence. So what actually, what right now, if you just become aware of the body sensations in your body, just let the mindfulness be quite open and tuning in, opening up to the flickering, the dancing, the coming and going of the body sensations. But the emphasis in the moment is really on seeing the change, not so much being precise what the sensation is, but really, really change, moment to moment, 
coming, going, arising, passing, being born, dying. That's what repeatedly the perception, the way of looking is tuning into. Change, change, change. Getting this feel for anicca, change. You could do it with sound as well. So there's the patterning, the shifting textures of the voice and the wind. And instead of precisely noting exactly what they are, just being mindful, actually it's the change, the element of change that we want the attention to, to really lock into, really notice over and over. If, if you were to sustain that for a while, or the anatta one, or, or many other possibilities, uh, but let's, let's stay with the impermanence one. The impermanence, in a way, is, if you like, the simplest for most people. It's also the, the least powerful, unfortunately. But um, A couple of things would happen. Uh, one is that y- you would probably find over time, or you should find over time, that as you sustain this in the Buddha's word, you remain focused on, on this fact of change, this experience of change, letting go starts to happen. It's, it's not like we need to tell the mind, oh, things are impermanent, look, therefore it would be a good idea to let go. It's not like that. It's almost like in the seeing of the change itself, some intuition, it's, not, it's, it's immediate, it's very immediate. Things are changing. I cannot hold on. Let go. So the very way of looking is empowering a letting go at a much deeper level than just simple mindfulness. So the way of looking brings letting go, brings a release of clinging, of grasping, of craving, automatically. Another thing that could possibly happen with sustaining that way of looking on impermanence is that you start to see the gaps in things. So for instance, I have a pain in my knee or my back or an emotion or whatever it is, or sounds. And you start to see, when you look moment to moment really close at the impermanence, that it's almost like what we think of as an object is actually made up of discrete moments. So this solidified pain in my knee is actually (coughs) uh, moments of unpleasant Vedana. And actually, you can begin to get the sense that there's gaps in between them. So this is one kind of desolidifying of the object. What seemed so solid is actually, on closer inspection, when I tune into the anicca, the impermanence, is actually less solid than it first seemed. The more solid it seems to me, the more I'm going to suffer or crave, either pushing away or wanting something. When I start to expose, to perceive it's less solid, the, the less craving. Do you understand? The yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so it, it's as if the solidity, the perceived solidity of something is a necessary basis for dukkha, for craving. And cra- Remember, dukkha depends on craving. So the more solid, the more I'm going to crave. 
So this desolidifying of things, it's a, it's, it's a very elementary way of seeing, seeing less solidity through impermanence, but, but it actually has an impact on, on a number of levels. So it's a way of looking that brings release in the moment. Now, there are, as I said, there are many possibilities. We could also say, you, uh, um, we talked about the anatta, the not-self, impermanence, it's called anicca, uh, there's three that go together. Sometimes they're called the three characteristics in the tradition. It's not a word the Buddha used. But, um, and the third one is dukkha. That things, phenomena, are dukkha. We could translate as unsatisfactory. Now, one, one reason why they're unsatisfactory is because they're impermanent. So it can't fulfill me forever. Now, what would it be? Sit, walk, in meditation, stand, whatever it is. And then the lens that I have on is just unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory. Whatever is coming up, ugly, beautiful, pleasant, unpleasant, neither, boring, whatever, mundane, far out, unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory. Can you feel the letting go in in just... So it's a way of looking, unsatisfactory. I know it's unsatisfactory because it's impermanent. Unsatisfactory. So rather than a rigid philosophical position in relation to existence, it becomes a fluid way of looking, something I can pick up and use, and I start to feel, oh, the unburdening, the unburdening, as I'm looking, the release, the opening, the beauty of it. How surprising to regard all things as unsatisfactory actually opens up so much beauty in the heart when it's not taken as a big life philosophy. Or another possibility, and I think this came up in the question-answer period, to just tune into the aspect of clinging and craving and when that push and pull is operating and just sustain, repeat a way of looking that's just letting that go over and over, feeling the clinging, letting it go, feeling the clinging, letting it go, or sustaining this attitude of allowing, welcoming, radical, 100, 150% allowing. What would, what would that do as a way of looking? Again, Huge, it's a practice, you develop, it's a huge release, huge opening, huge beauty that comes. Many possibilities. In a way, mindfulness too is, you could see it in this way of thinking about all this. Mindfulness is actually a way of looking at things, or what we have come to call mindfulness. It's a way of looking that has less papancha in it, right? When we're, when we're mindful, we're trying to be uh, trying to cut all this proliferation and complexity and overlay of all this stuff, right? That's what we teach from beginning retreat. Can you be with the thing more directly? It's a way of looking that involves less papancha. Because it involves less papancha, is less suffering in the moment. There's also, and someone asked this in the Q&A, there is also, in the way that we talk about mindfulness, a degree, a degree of, of lessening of reactivity, for sure. So again, because of that, mindfulness is a skillful way of looking. It's one skillful way of looking that, to a degree, lessens suffering in the moment. And as I said before, just sustaining mindfulness can also start to reveal things like the, an experience of not-self, which can then be used. Or that, that things are not-self. Or it can start, just the close mindfulness can start revealing these gaps in things, this lessening of the solidity. In a way, metta is a way of looking. 
don't usually think about it that way, but metta is actually, you could conceive it as a way of looking. And again, what happens if I sustain that as a way of looking, not just at self and other beings, but at phenomena too? What happens to the experience? What do I learn? What unfolds in terms of the release of dukkha? Someone was asking too about the uh, nature of awareness. And it could be, again, just from simple mindfulness practice, as it deepens, as things settle, that the sense of awareness starts to become more prominent. We don't usually notice it. And then a person begins tuning into it and can actually start using that sense of awareness that we're usually not aware of and start using that to empower uh, the release of suffering in the moment. When the awareness becomes more prominent, the phenomena within the awareness seem less important. They kind of belong to the awareness, coming and going, and the awareness just holds them. Beautiful. I get through through that there's a release in relationship to the phenomena. So these they're experientially based uh, using ways of looking that are experientially based. They could come out of meditative experience, could come out of the thinking, reflection, logic, could come out of an intuition or intuitions. And any of that uh, can be used. What they have in common, to say it again, what they have in common is that they're ways of looking that release, reduce, uh, alleviate suffering, dukkha, in the moment, in the moment. And their empowerments, their sort of turbocharging uh, uh, of that release uh, compared to just, say, simple mindfulness practice. So in many of these instances, what was a result, an insight as a result, can be used as insight as method. Can we t- take this result, I see that it's anatta or whatever, I have this experience, then you start using that as a method. In a way, when we do that, um, you could say that there's a kind of shorthand version of the Four Noble Truths going on there. In, in the present... There's an intimate relationship with dukkha, even if it's very, very subtle dukkha, intimate relationship with dukkha. Sometimes we have, we have dukkha. You don't realize that our normal state of consciousness is actually a state of dukkha until it's released through some more powerful means. And then you look back and you think, wow, we actually walk around in a state of contraction most of the time. It's different degrees of dukkha. But if you... If you take up this way of thinking of, of insight, it's just one possibility. And there's this intimate concern with suffering, dukkha, whatever degree, in the moment, and with its causes. And the causes are in the way of looking. It's through the way of looking that we're uh, tightening or consolidating or exacerbating, increasing, proliferating suffering. Usually when they're suffering habitually we find a way of looking at it that that creates more problem or just keeps the suffering locked in place. So rather, what would it be to take up a different, skillful ways of looking that actually, third noble truth, release, release that suffering. 
So the way of looking is the equivalent of the fourth noble truth. It's the way. But it's all happening in the present in a very shorthand way. One uh, fruit that comes out of thinking of things this way is that uh, what we get to do is we get to repeat insights. You get to, through the repeating and sustaining way, you're actually repeating, let's say, the insight of anatta, the insight that these body sensations are not self, this emotion, this contraction, these thoughts are not self. So countless times you're actually repeating this insight at a certain level, and that's consolidating that insight. It's so rare for an insight to happen once, and boom, that's the end of it. I don't need to see it again. So repeating it, actually, you can digest it. So, for example, again, with the anatta, I'm through repetition, through sustaining a way of looking, we're actually uh, consolidating this insight through repetition that these thoughts are not self. So it's not just a one-off experience. It's probably not going to have much power. Seeing it over and over and over, it's going deeper and deeper. The, the heart is absorbing, digesting these insights that these uh, sensations are not self. And also that this way of looking, whatever it is, anatta, impermanence, whatever, that this is a way of looking that releases suffering. So there's double insight there at least that's getting consolidated through repetition. The other or another fruit here possibly would be that then through the repetition, this insight at a certain level becomes uh, a platform for deeper insights. Other insights, deeper ones, that aren't immediately available, start to emerge from the repetition of insight at the more rudimentary level. So, for example, um, if we take the... uh, this letting everything belong to awareness. It's a way of looking, letting everything belong to awareness and, and just repeating that. Very lovely to stay in that space, to feel the release of that. At a certain point, it matures and it begins to feel uh, or to seem, one has the perception, that the phenomena arising in this space of awareness, it's not just that they belong to the awareness, they actually seem to be the same in inverted commas, substance as awareness. No difference. No difference. The same stuff, if you like. And then the level of release, of beauty, of openness, etc., of freedom, goes to a whole other level. And after a few times, I can maybe start to use that other level as the insight, as the thing that I'm repeating and using. And then maybe goes deeper. Another possibility emerges. Or with the anatta, and we touched on this, start to, start to develop this capacity or cultivate this uh, seeing of things, this way of looking at phenomena, not me, not mine, not self, thoughts, sensations, the whole, the whole thing, consciousness, everything, not self, not self. First thing I notice is that there's going to be freedom, and when I do that, there's freedom, lovely as it deepens, something else starts to happen, which is the very uh, objects that I'm looking at begin to dissolve through the way of looking, 
things, phenomena start to fade, the self sense too starts to fade. Self and object start start to basically disappear through the way of looking. And one sees this connection. When I look at things this way, less is fabricated of self and object. So there's an insight arising there into the whole nature of perception and reality. These things, self, selves and objects, are empty. They're fabricated. A new insight has emerged. And then that new insight can start using that insight. So, as, as a new way of looking. So this, uh, these three characteristics, sometimes so much emphasis on them in the Theravadan system, I would regard them more as avenues than as results. We're not aiming to have, uh, as a final thing, to have insight into the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. These are tools, they're avenues. You start following a thread and it goes deeper and deeper, it goes beyond itself. They're, in the Buddha's words, they're trainings. They're trainings. Training the perception. Um, so a lot of this is actually quite predictable, believe it or not. And uh, I've done many retreats, longer retreats, where, as I said at the beginning, where they're actually everyone's on the same page. To set, set people up with certain practices and let them kind of cook those practices a little bit, come back in a week or so, and I could have on a piece of paper what people will be experiencing and I ask them what they're experiencing, and they say exactly that. And it will be what I've said. Less suffering, a sense of openness comes, and then things start fading. Did you notice this? Yes, we noticed that. So there's, there's some law of perception, laws of perception operating here. Uh, it's as if the way of looking, uh, we're... we're pulling on a, on a way of looking it's unbinding something it's unbinding the dukkha or we could say now we start connecting to last week's talk the, the very way of looking is removing the fabrication it's removing the, build, the builders the building blocks the rafters of the house do you understand that? yes? good thank you um, so the way of looking is, is removing Rather than adding, it's removing. And this is what uh, we were talking about last time. The way of looking incorporates less aversion, less clinging, less, uh, less ignorance, less whatever. Uh, and with the removal of the, if we use the ugly word, fabricators, the builders, the, the rafters of this house, with the removal of them, we see that there's less fabrication of not only self, but object as well. Self and object. To the degree that I remove this, there's less. And remember, if you do remember from last time, all these things are spectra. They're con- continua. So self is not an on-off switch. Clinging is not an on-off switch. Dukkha is not an on-off switch. There, there are degrees of dukkha. We all know. It's very, very gross, very uh, dis- disturbed, more and more subtle, more and more subtle. The same with self, the same with clinging, the same with perception of things, the experience of things. So all this moves along this spectrum, down this spectrum of fading together. Clinging, dukkha, self, 
perception, avijja, ignorance, all of it. Do we arrive at a point as, I, as we start removing through the way of looking, as I start removing ignorance from the way of looking, so say, I start removing this sense of me, mine, that I habitually do, which is a movement of ignorance, and I take that away. And do I arrive, as I remove ignorance away, at a real way things are? I finally get down. When I'm not looking at things with any sense of self, I finally get down to, to the, the crystalline... Uh, precise raw data of this experience absolutely not absolutely not that's not what happens it might be a bandwidth that I feel like I go through this is what we talked about last time I won't arrive at anything actually as the Buddha says in those quotes we gave last time when the monk when the practitioner abandons desire when they abandon avijja everything disappears there is a fading of experience of perception of everything that is fabricated, of sensation. That's looking at things with the complete removal of avijja, with the complete removal of of push-pull reactivity, etc. So I don't arrive at Sambhara, quite the opposite. And if I I say, okay, well then, where on that spectrum is is, is the place, how much clinging, how much avijja, how much ignorance, how much selfing reveals the real object or the real nature of the self? Do you, do you understand the question? Where, who's going to say? And if actually with no avijja, nothing appears in that moment, when I'm really looking at things without any avijja, what am I going to say? All I can, all, all I can say <laughs> is that it's empty. The nature of things is empty. They're fabricated. So you use a way of looking and it reveals this emptiness of things. There is no real way things are. They're fabricated. And I start to understand that. And then I can use that understanding at a deeper level. And I start to use that as a way of looking. What happens I start to look at things not as not me, not mine, but I start to look empty, empty, empty. I know you're empty. I've seen you're empty. And that becomes my way of looking. That's a much more powerful way of looking. You've taken the whole thing to a whole other level then in terms of its ability to free in the moment, to release dukkha, to, to unfabricate. So some of you weren't here, but in one of the first two talks in the first weeks, you know, I, I threw out a question, how, and I said, it's hard for a person, you'd have to believe me, but if there are unconsciously habitual, subtle views and conceptions always wrapped up with the perception, which means the experience of anything, if that's always there in the habitual ways of looking, of perceiving, including mindfulness, including when there's not any thinking, There's views, conceptions, me, mine going on. I'm not thinking it, I'm feeling it, I'm intuiting it. I don't even realize that I'm doing it. That thing exists. This is a real awareness knowing that. All this exists. How how are we to go, if that's wrapped up in our mindfulness, without thinking, how are we going to go beyond it? What possibility, what would open that door? And these views, conceptions, very subtle, keep Fab, keep shaping 
experience the same way. They deliver the same emotions, but even at a more subtle level, they keep fabricating things. How are we going to go beyond it? How are we going to see this profound emptiness of everything? Everything. I mean, there's many ways, but in a way, today I'm just giving one possibility of how that is possible. Because actually it's quite a, it's quite a conundrum. The very way of looking, at, very usual ways of looking at things actually reinforce avijja and dukkha. So how are we going to un- unwrap that? As the Buddha said, who will untangle this tangle? And why is that important? It's because the thing, the understanding that frees most profoundly is emptiness. I said this, I can't remember in the first two talks, but we suffer because we think things are real. If I don't think a thing is real, I can't suffer in relation. If I know it's not really real, I can't suffer in relationship to it. So it's the understanding profound understanding of the emptiness of things that's what cuts dukkha at the deepest level so that's why it's important it's interesting though I I think I feel very um, privileged I feel for different reasons a lot of the teaching that I've done over the years has involved um Right, right from the beginning has involved discussions, Dharma discussions, um, with groups of practitioners, experienced and less experienced, and um, reg- regularly do that, um, even before I was coming to Guy, came to Guy House. And, uh, and I'm very curious always to listen to how people, and to draw out of them, how, how are you thinking about practice? How are you viewing this whole endeavor? What do you think, what, what, what is your sense of what you're up to with all of this? And what's really common is that people have, again, it's either explicit or, or more, uh, less articulated, um, practice is about being with what is. And the, we're supposed to be with everything and kind of accept and sort of try and be in your body and, uh, and, that, and, and be nice. <laughs> um, and that's what practice is about. Um, and, and so much so, that it's, it's such a common understanding that sometimes I've sort of given talks when absolutely said this is not what it's about and, and afterwards people say so, so you're saying basically be with everything <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a hard one to, to uh, jiggle um, and even just the other day someone was saying well, they, they were, ha- were feeling some anger and then they began to reflect on the anger and the reflection actually helped uh, un untangle the anger and there was some release and they felt much better and they were like well I shouldn't really be doing that right because I'm supposed to just be with it no no we're interested in cutting dukkha and how it, the deeper we can cut the dukkha the better um, so mindfulness again being with what is is just one way of looking it's just one way of looking among many possibilities the point of the path is an understanding that frees, or understandings that free. That's the thing that's going to have the power. And when you start going a little bit deeper, we need to be careful about the, uh, the assumptions um, in, in notions like mindfulness, or in notions like bare attention, or in notions of what is. Careful of the assumptions. Oftentimes they're hidden, they're not explicit. They're... Assumptions that reify, that make uh, real, 
what's there. <clears throat> well, sim- similarly, the idea of just being, it's a very attractive idea if we feel very tired and harassed by all the uh, pressure we put on ourselves and you know, critic and always trying, then the idea of just being in meditation is very, very attractive. Again, it can be very skillful, but only as one uh, one provisional way of thinking, way of looking, eventually. Because actually we realize that to be, to exist, to, to have experience is to do. It, it involves a doing. That doing is fabricating. Whenever, to repeat again, whenever there's perception, whenever there's experience, sensation, no matter how subtle, with or without label, even the, the most uh, rapid impermanence you could see, it's fabricated. It's a fabricated perception. And that fabrication involves doing. It involves doing. We're fabricating through the way of looking. We don't realize it. And there's always a way of looking. So when there's experience, there's always a way of looking. You don't realize this until, until you go quite deep. You don't, you, we don't think in these terms. But there's always a way of looking. Whenever there's an experience, there's a way of looking at that experience. And that way of looking is fabricating. It's part of fabricating that experience. Well, I can't live without experience. I can't live at this deep end of the spectrum that the Buddha was talking about when a practitioner abandons desire, abandons, and there's the fading of perception. I can't live without experience perception there's always life is perception experience and when there is perception experience there's always a way of looking there's always a fabricating so what am I going to fabricate becomes a question what am I going to fabricate I want to say I mentioned briefly last time, there's a twist in the tale to all this. It's actually quite profound. Um, and quite beautiful. This whole notion, this idea of fabrication that the Buddha talked about, or or idea of dependent origination, here we mean a thing, a perception, is dependent on the mind. Dependent on the mind, that's the key dependency, if you remember from last talk. It actually, as we, as we take it deeper as a thread of insight, starts going beyond itself in the most beautiful way. starts eating itself as an insight. Because you start to realize, well this, you say, things are fabricated by the mind. I start to see that. And then we start to see, actually this mind too, however I look at it, if I look at it as... Uh, a bunch of factors uh, that come together in tension and consciousness and attention or what, whatever, as the Buddha. Or if I think about it just in terms of awareness, pure awareness, that's fabricated too in the process. Something very mysterious is going on. Mind and object get fabricated together. They're both illusory, if you remember from last talk. Mutually dependent, both empty. So it's not like all this is fabricated and there's something unfabricated creating this fabrication. Something much more mysterious. Take it a step further as well. 
if that which is fabricated, things and objects, are not really real, and if that which fabricates the mind is not really real, and if one eventually sees time also is empty, is a dependent arising, this whole notion of fabrication dissolves. What is fabricated is not real. What fabricates is not real. The time in which fabrication, dependent arising happens is not real. Fabrication is not real. And if fabrication is not real, not really real, then the unfabricated is not really real. The whole notion of the unfabricated rests on the notion of the fabricated. The whole thing was starting to pull on this thread of insight and it starts dissolving and ending up dissolving itself. The thread is not a very good analogy. It's like a snake eating its own tail. To me, this is part of the genius of the Buddha. He took some concepts, said if you follow these concepts, if you use them in practice, they actually bring a lot of freedom and then they start dissolving even themselves, using these concepts lightly through practice to go beyond themselves. There isn't really fabrication. There isn't really unfabricated. The whole duality collapses. So this this teaching of dependent origination, fabrication, it's not really an explanation. Hannah likes this. (laughs) It's not really an explanation. It's only an explanation at one level. People say, I want to understand dependent origination. It means putting everything in a box. Yes, at one level. At another level, you see, it unbinds. The whole thing starts dissolving. It's only at a certain level that it's a system to understand things. And then, beyond words, something, I don't know, magical, awesome in that, in that. Then the whole notion of, remember we talked last time, we said this word fabrication or concoction in English is good because it has the second meaning or the implication of something being false and so kind of a little bit, um, what would you say, derogatory or negative. It's just a fabrication, it's just a fabrication. It's not really real. Now with this, with this twist it starts to not have its negative connotation because there's nothing really unfabricated with which to compare it to. There is just mystery, magic, emptiness. It's interesting, if you look up the word, uh, the word in Sanskrit for fabricated is sanskrita. It's actually the same word for Sanskrit language. It has three meanings. The first one is Sanskrit language. Second is fabricated. The third actually is consecrated, made holy. So if just a, not really a logical move, but a poetic move. The whole notion of fabrication no longer has its negative connotation. Actually you start to see this level, this non-duality, and the whole thing becomes holy. The whole thing becomes magic, all of it.
if if there's not really any real way things are really in themselves and this is what all this is saying then that starts to throw more of the emphasis on the way of looking the way of looking starts to become much more significant and you start to realize oh really it's only that we can pick up and put down different skillful ways of looking that's what practice becomes we're picking up and putting down different skillful ways of looking at things, that experience, that bring freedom. That's what skillful means. That release dukkha, that bring freedom. All kinds of possibilities, all kinds of possibilities open up in, in the range of ways of looking that are possible to be cultivated, not as one-offs, but to be used, to cultivate it. Now, ways of looking are empty too. It's not that they're real things. But this is everything gets thrown back to just ways of looking. The beauty of that. So this is this is why, partly just ending now. This is why I give the talk in these. I gave the talk this time in, in these in these this order. So I've I've said to people before in practice. I've said something like insight meditation is using uh, skillful ways of looking that bring freedom. But without all this, it, it doesn't have the same significance perhaps start to realize there's a degree of malleability in our perception in our sense of things that's way way beyond what we might have imagined uh, all this is like I said right at the beginning of the, the first of these two talks all this is completely optional so um you know, it's just a, one possible way of conceiving of practice. It's not. I'm not saying it's the way or this is right and everything else. I'm not not saying that at all. It's just one possible way of conceiving. All all it needs, though, to start moving down these kind of avenues, it, all all one needs is just to realize that different ways of looking are possible. It's possible to look at self and experience in different ways, and see that these ways of looking are actually experimentable with and cultivatable. I can develop different ways of looking and see what happens. That's the experiment bit. See what happens when I cultivate or develop this particular way of looking or that way of looking. And see, you could turn it around, see, see what stops happening or what starts to happen less and then stops happening if we put it in the negative. Just by developing a particular avenue, a way of looking. See the effects on dukkha, on the release of dukkha, on the self-sense. In the moment, on dukkha, on the self-sense, on perception and experience. So they're practices. And if we experiment, you can see, one can see, uh, there's a skillful unbinding of, of the knots of dukkha. Through the way of look, through the ways of looking as they're developed, they fabricate less dukkha, and they also begin to unfold, reveal uh, layers and layers of, of uh, r- radical, d- deeper understanding, deeper and deeper. So it's a possibility uh, as as a way of conceiving, as a way of moving and understanding what one's doing and developing uh, practice. Very uh, powerful possibility.
Let's have a bit of quiet together then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.